Good evening and good day everyone. Welcome to episode 12 of Ask Abhijit. Today I'm going to answer your questions about world history. So world history is a fascinating topic. It is something we should all learn more about because studying world history helps us understand the forces and the factors and the various influences that shape the course of, of events worldwide. And these are the events that eventually end us affecting and uh, end, end up affecting our day-to-day -day lives. So world history is a fascinating topic. I promise you it's very interesting. It's more interesting than most fiction stories. So these are the things that we're going to discuss today. And as always, you guys have asked a lot of wonderful, very interesting questions. So I'm, I have selected a few of these questions that you people have asked, and I'm going to take those up today. And to, as, a, as always, today is a 60-minute session. And at the end, if there is time, I'm going to take a few uh, live chat questions. So let us go right in. Let's dive in and let's take the first question. So this is by Akash. Akash asks, was the battle between Sparta and Athens true or is it part of their mythology? Good question. So it is a true, it is not, it's not a battle, it was a war. And it is a true, a true war, it's a true event. It's something that happened in the 5th century BCE. So when we discuss history, it's always in, useful to take a look at the map. So let me show you, uh, share the map with you. This is where we are. So let me take you to where these events happened. We are here in India. Let's go e Let's go westwards. So this here is the nation, the modern nation of Greece. So this battle, this war took place in the 5th century BCE between Athens, which you see right here in the middle of the screen, and the city of Sparta, which is here. So these were two coalitions between, uh, so at the time, Greece was divided into nation states and all of these nation states were at some time or the other, usually invariably at war with each other. They were always battling for supremacy. So Sparta was a traditional hegemonic power in Greece. It is in this peninsula, which is called the Penipolis Peninsula. And this war was called the Penipolisian War. So what happened was that Sparta was a traditional power in Greece. It was the hegemonic power. And in the first half of the 5th century BCE, Athens began to emerge as a powerful city-state. Uh, at the time, there was a conflict between Greece and Persia. So much of what is east of Greece, present-day Anatolia, etc., was all occupied by the Persian Achaemenid Empire, the Hakshamanish dynasty. And Persia was for a great deal of time at war with the Greeks. So the Athenians, they managed to repulse Persian invasions and they defeated the Persians in several battles and they became very powerful and they had a greater population. So they created a confederation of city-states, an alliance of city-states. And this basically stood against the alliance of the Spartans. So the Spartans had a number of allies on the Peninsulation Peninsula. Now, Athens has a, had a greater population than Sparta. It was more powerful. It had, uh, it was able to build a much greater army, many more, uh, many more infantry soldiers than the than the uh, Spartans. They grew, they grew a big navy, more than three hundred naval ships. While Sparta did not have a single ship at all, 
and the Athenians became so powerful that they basically uh, started extracting tribute from their so-called alliance uh, members, the other city-states. So they became a hegemonic dominant power, and uh, they posed a great deal of uh, a great threat to the Spartan alliance. So the historian Thucydides, who was from Athens, he observed that the emergence of Athens as a new uh, as a new power threatened to displace the existing hegemony of Sparta. And he said that when such a when such a thing happens, war is inevitable. And this is called the Thucydides trap. It is something that is relevant even today in geopolitics. Whenever war is essentially inevitable, according to this principle, when an emerging power threatens to displace an existing great power, either on a regional level or at the international le level as the existing hegemon. So this is currently a uh, this is currently used to analyze the U.S.-China rivalry. So that's about uh, Thucydides. So the Athenians and the Spartans basically went to war. The war happened in the second half of the 5th century BCE. It was a great drawn-out affair. It, happened, it, it went on for almost three decades. And there were many ups and downs, many phases of the war. There were many uh, détentes. There were many uh, ceasefires as well. There were periods of relative stability, and then they went back to war. Initially, Athens was very powerful. They had a much greater army. They had these hoplite soldiers. Hoplites were infantrymen who were very well armored, and they would have these spears. They had hoplites. They had uh, archers. They developed this, uh, the, the ar archery tactics. They, they, uh, they hired swords. Uh, they, they hired horsemen from Scythia. So they built up a great... Uh, in uh, ca cavalry army as well and then they used all that on their ships so they had brilliant naval tactics they used to put archers and hoplites and even cavalrymen on ships and they used this to raid the Penipolis peninsula and initially uh, the Athenians had a great deal of success but eventually the Spartans were able to prevail when they started adopting the same tactics that the Athenians had so at the end of the day at the end of the war the Spartans triumphed because, and they also had some help from the Persians, from the Achaemenid Empire. So at the end of the day, at the end of the war, they were able to invade and occupy Athens. And that was the end of the war. So that brought an end to the era of Athenian dominance in Greece. It brought the Athenian Empire essentially crashing down for some time. Uh, in the next century, there was a brief uh, resurgence of Athens. There was another war. And so on, the history of cycles go on. So that is in brief about the Peniponesian conflict between the Greeks and the Spartans. It is very much a real conflict and it is something that historians even today draw, uh, draw lessons from, especially the Thucydides trap, which says that when a new power emerges and threatens the uh, hegemony of the existing power, whoever it is, then war is almost inevitable. And that's why people believe that today war is more or less inevitable in some form or the other between the Americans and the Chinese. So that's in brief about this question. It's a wonderful question. Okay, Udit asks, can you tell us anything about the life of Napoleon Bonaparte that fascinates you the most? So Napoleon is a fascinating personality. This entire life is fascinating. It's a, it's a very adventurous, action-filled life. And he rose out of obscurity and achieved so much. So let me tell you just some highlights from his life. So once again, let's go to the map because maps help a lot. So 
We were in Greece. Let's go further westwards. So this is Greece. Now we are in Italy, as you can see. And to the west of Italy, there is this island called Corsica. So this island was historically owned by the, the, by the Genoans. Can you see the city here, Genoa? So this city was a very wealthy city-state in ancient Italy, in the Middle Ages, etc. And they owned this little island called Corsica. It's not a little island, it's a reasonably well-sized island. And it is on this island that Napoleon was born. So he was born in the town of Ajaccio, Ajaccio, or whatever it's called, whatever the pronunciation is. So that's where he was born. He was born in the year 1769. And what's interesting is that at the time it was Italian territory. And when the Genoese sold the island to France, Napoleon's father fought the French, fought the French. He fought the French, French occupiers. So Napoleon was born Napoleone di Buonaparte. It's an Italian name, Napoleone di Buonaparte. That was his real name. So his father fought the French on this island. And eventually uh, the rebellion failed and he made his peace with the French, his father, Napoleon's father. And he was appointed as the emissary of the Corsican people to the emperor of France. So he went to Paris and he developed good connections with the French. And it is these connections that enabled Napoleon, the young Napoleon, to go to Paris and enroll, to go to France and enroll in a military school. So he enrolled in a military school and uh, he had a lot of problems because he spoke the Corsican language. He did not speak French. He learned French quickly, but he had this thick uh, rural Corsican accent for which he was mercilessly teased, but it made no effect on him. He was very... Uh, very strong-willed, and it was soon found that he was very good at mathematics and logic and tactics, especially at geometry. So his tutors uh, advised him to join the Navy, because geometry is a skill that is very, uh, very, very useful in, in naval affairs, especially in naval combat, etc. So Napoleon considered joining the Royal Navy, the British Navy, because he did not feel any particular allegiance to France. But then he decided to join the French army, the infantry, the artillery division, because even in artillery, you need a great deal of geometrical uh, expertise in geometry, projectile motion, distances and all that. So he joined the French uh, army. He was in the artillery division. And that's when in 1789, the French Revolution happened, which was a terrible, bloody affair. So he went back to Corsica for some time, for a few years, when the, while the revolution played itself out in France. And then uh, he returned to France. He rejoined the army or he rejoined his regiment, etc. And then he had a very interesting uh, initiation combat. So there is a city of Toulon over here in uh, southern France on the coast, on the Mediterranean coast. So this city was at the time... So France had undergone this revolution. The monarchy was overthrown. A revolutionary government was in power. And this city, Toulon, was, was held by royalist forces and it was helped by the British Royal Navy. So the British Royal Navy was over here in the harbor of this, of this city. They were uh, protecting the royalists with their uh, firepower. And this was threatening to become a big rebellion that would uh, basically undo the changes that the French Revolution brought about. 
So what Napoleon did was he, as a young officer, let me show the actual uh, map. So as a young officer, what he did was he brought his artillery uh, regiment to this city of Toulon. Okay. And, uh, and there is a hill which overlooks the city. This hill here, it's called Mont Farron. So he had his, his troops climb this hill with the artillery. He was injured in the attempt to take the hill, but he was able to take the hill. And from here, he was able to threaten the Royal Navy and he was able to evict them from the harbor of the city. And because of that, the French were able to retake the city and the revolution was saved. And this catapulted Napoleon to a great deal of fame and it advanced him in his career and so on. And then he was appointed as the, he, uh, there was a lot of lot more developments. He even uh, foiled an insurrection in Paris. He opened fire with artillery in the heart of Paris, in the heart of Paris on the insurrectionist. He, he basically killed 1,400 plus people with artillery firepower. And he again saved the revolutionary government, uh, the revolutionary government, because of which he was given a big advancement. He was given the charge of the army of Italy. So he went into Italy. He fought many battles there against the Austrians. Because when the revolution happened, France lost a lot of territory outside France, which the monarchy had held. Revolutions are dangerous, and uh, uh, they, they, these these affairs are they cause sometimes more harm than good to a nation. So France had lost a lot of territory in Italy. He went to Italy, he regained all the territory from the Austrians and that again embellished and burnished his credentials. After that, he went to, he basically went to uh, Egypt. He wanted to cut off the British trade routes to India. So he entered into an alliance with the, with Tipu Sultan, the butcher of Mysore. And he invaded Egypt with the hope, with the hope of, uh, of, conquering this country and cutting off the British trade routes to India. So he initially met great success, but eventually the British Navy under Admiral Nelson was able to destroy the French fleet. And so it was an incl inconclusive affair. So Napoleon went into the regions of Syria, Damascus, etc. And from there, he went back to France. In France, he engineered a coup in Paris, right? He engineered a, a coup over there. And he essentially uh, became the dictator of France in a very short period of time. He wrote a new constitution and he proclaimed himself consul for life in France. And he installed himself in the uh, royal palace in Paris. And then uh, what happened was that uh, many other things happened as you, I'm just going very, very quickly through history. In 1802, he, uh, he, uh, so during the French Revolution, slavery had been abolished in the French Empire. But in 1802, Napoleon re-established slavery in the French West Indies, especially Haiti, this place here. And there was a Haitian rebellion, which actually succeeded and it drove the French out of Haiti. So Napoleon found that, uh, and at that time, Napoleon, the French had a great deal of territory in the, in the present day United States. So Napoleon found that this was too much of a distraction. So he sold this territory to the Americans, to the United States, which was at the time only limited to the east of the country. This was called the Louisiana Purchase. An enormous amount of territory was sold to the Americans for about $15 million. And then, uh, so, so that's uh, what he did in the Americas. Uh, 19, uh, in 1803 was the Louisiana Purchase. In 1804, he was proclaimed the emperor of France. He was given the crown by the Pope, the Pope himself. 
And in 1805, he became the emperor of Italy as well. So he achieved so much in such a short period of time. I will not go into the entire history of Napoleon. It's There's a lot more to cover. But as you can see, he's a fascinating, fascinating character. And he's one of the most uh, interesting characters in, in all of world history. So that's a little bit about Napoleon. Very interesting character. I would uh, recommend you study about his, you read up about his life and his history and his, his career. He was an adventurer. He, was, he had this... Uh, he had a guerrilla mindset, he had a mercenary mindset, and he basically came out of nowhere and became the emperor of France. Fascinating story. And he was very ambitious. At the end, he tried to overreach himself, and it cost him, at the end, it cost him everything. But what a life he lived. What a life. So, very interesting uh, chapter of history. Very interesting. Okay. Uh, is it... Uh, how true are the stories regarding gladiators in Rome? Did they really get freedom after winning tournaments or were they just slaves? So gladiators were slaves. They had no rights. They were essentially property. So we, we look upon Rome as a great empire, a great civilization, a great uh, powerful force in ancient history. And what we tend to disregard because of the way we are taught history is how uh, oppressive Rome was. It was a slave-owning oligarchy, which means it was a very small number of people, a very small group of people who held all the power in Rome. And a significant population, significant percentage of the population of not just Rome and Italy, but of the entire Roman Empire was slaves. So slaves were property. They had no rights. right? They could be killed or used in any manner whatsoever. And slavery began in Rome with the mythical founder of Rome, Romulus, who decreed that fathers could sell their children into slavery in order to get rid of debts, etc. So slavery was an integral part of, of Roman life, of Roman culture. And the other interesting thing about Rome is the uh, gender disparity they had. So the uh, Gender ratio was seven in, seven to five men to women. There were seven men to five women because of the practice of female infanticide, which was routine and widespread. Fem female children were not were looked upon very poorly. No one wanted a female child. It was a burden. So there was this widespread rampant practice of female infanticide in Rome because of which the gender ratio was seven is to five men to women. It's incredible, right? And coming back to slavery. So slavery was rampant. People would be taken uh, as slaves by, by the thousands. You know, when Julius Caesar conquered uh, Gaul, which is uh, present-day France, he captured, I mean, he he decreed people to be slaves instantaneously. The moment he captured a town or village, 50,000 people at one time immediately became slaves. And they were sold off and Julius Caesar got richer and richer by engaging in this slave trade. So not only did he plunder the resources of, of uh, the Gaulish territories, the Celtic territories of Iberia, of, of other regions of Germania and whatnot, not only did he plunder the, these territories for all their resources for gold and, and metals and other, other uh, valuables, but he also set, set everybody uh, to slavery. And these slaves were all carted off to Rome and they were sold off in slave auctions. And and they were put to different uses. And some of them ended up as gladiators. 
being a, becoming a gladiator was also a punishment in Rome. So a citizen who was uh, guilty of certain certain specific crimes could be punished to go and fight in the arena as a gladiator. So gladiators were property. They were slaves. Uh, very, very few of them, if any, would ever get their freedom. You could not just win your freedom by winning a couple of tournaments. You were still owned by a slave owner, by, by a gladiator school, by a stable. They were called stables, like stables for horses. So they had stables of gladiators. And the typical lifespan was very short for gladiators. They had a very, very intense training regimen. And many of them would die in their first fight in the arena. And uh, and I think the median age at death was 27 or thereabouts. There are many cemeteries that have been found of gladiators. So these people usually have elongated right arms. The bones of the right arm are usually elongated. Most of them were right-handed. And they would practice, they would train with the, with the sword from day to night because of which this deformity would occur. And left-handed gladiators were advertised as a rarity because there were very few. And uh, so where does the name gladiator come, fr come from? It comes from the name of the Roman sword, which is called the gladius. So the Roman straight sword was called the gladius. And that gave rise to the name gladiators, the ones who use the gladius to fight. So the gladiators went through intense training regimens. They had short lives. They ate predominantly a vegetarian diet, right? Uh, which is surprising, but it has been found to be true because they have analyzed the uh, bones of uh, gladiators from gladiator cemeteries. And they have found through chemical isotope analysis that the diet was predominantly vegetarian and with a great deal of barley and other grains. And there was some meat, but it was mostly vegetarian. So once again, these were slaves, these were property. It's a very interesting period of history. Uh, there was even a gladiator revolution, the third servile war, I think. So there were three servile wars in Rome. These were slave insurrections, who, slaves who tried to rise up against the tyranny and the oppression of, of Roman society. So these were three separate wars in the second and the first centuries BCE. One of these was the uh, great gladiatorial rebellion led by a gladiator called Spartacus. He was a Scythian from Thrace. Thrace is uh, further east from Rome. It's essentially uh, it's essentially western, the westernmost part of Turkey and north of that. So that was not Turkish at the time, that region. It was a Scythian. The people were mostly of Scythian extraction. Scythians are an ancient Indo-Iranian people. So that's a different story altogether. So a slave, a gladiator named Spartacus, who was of Thracian origin, he led this great insurrection against the Romans, this great rebellions. It actually threatened Rome itself at a point, at one point. And eventually this rebellion was crushed by the Romans. And there was this great road to Rome. Uh, I don't remember, via something, via... I forgot the name of the road. It was lined up with crucifixes and these gladiators were all crucified for miles and miles as a warning to other slaves. So Rome was a brutal society. A significant percentage of the population was slaves and only a, a small percentage of the population were actually given the title of citizens. These were the nobility, the aristocracy, the, aristocracy, the landowners and the prosperous people. Everybody else was either uh, plebeians, uh, not plebeians, they were basically the commoners, non-citizens, or even worse, slaves. So that's in brief about Roman society. Very interesting question, sir. 
Akash again. Akash has asked a lot of good questions, so I've taken a bunch of those today. Uh, so the question is, what was the prime factor behind the British ruling most of the world at one time? And how did they become so strong and greedy? So as always, when an event happens in history, there is a lot of context and causal, and there's a causal chain behind it. And that causal chain can go back centuries. So let's go back to the root of how this all began. So in the 14th and 15th centuries, the, the English were a middling small kingdom in, in Europe. The, it was not a powerful kingdom at all. The British were a small middling kingdom. And in the beginning of the 15th century, we you had this great, not great, but very uh, famous king, Henry VIII. So Henry VIII was a king of the Tudor dynasty. He was well known for marrying many, many wives and executing most of them eventually. And he had this, uh, he had delusions of grandeur. He, he saw himself as one of the great statesmen and conqueror of the world, conquerors of the world. And he also uh, was had this tendency to fall in love very often. So he was initially married to Catherine of Aragon, who was a Spanish princess. He had a child with her, uh, a daughter named Mary. And he wanted a son, naturally. And uh, Catherine, for whatever reason, was unable to uh, bear a male child for him. And so Henry the, Henry VIII fell in love with uh, a noble woman named Anne Boleyn and he wanted to uh, divorce Catherine of Aragon and marry Anne Boleyn. Now in those days, I mean you would imagine a king could just marry whoever he wanted but no, in Europe the supreme power rested with Rome, the Catholic Church, the Vatican and the Pope was the supreme authority in, in the whole of Europe who decided what kings could and could not do. So Henry VIII had to request the Pope to grant him an annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon and allow him to marry Anne Boleyn and the Pope refused. So that's the power the Pope had. That's the power the Vatican had. They were actually the supreme power in Europe. They had more power than any king, any emperor in Europe. So the Pope refused to grant Henry the annulment of his marriage. So what Henry did was he refuted the authority of the Vatican Church, he embraced Protestantism and he created a new church in England, the supreme authority of all Christians in England, the Anglican Church. So he broke off from the Vatican, he changed his faith basically, he became, he, he made the whole of England Protestant, he started his own church, the Anglican Church, the Archbishop of Can Canterbury is the supreme head of this church and he had the marriage to uh, Catherine of Aragon annulled and he married Anne Boleyn. So this broke, this essentially ended the hegemony of the Catholic Church in England. Now, it had long-term effects on England. The Catholic Church had imposed the so-called dark ages on, on Europe. No new ideas were allowed. No science was allowed. Science and anything which was not written in the, the canonical texts of the church, anything that was not in this text was, was basically turned as satanism and it was punishable by death so this is the hegemony that ended in england and after henry his after henry died his daughter mary tried to uh, revoke what henry did he she tried to bring catholicism back 
but she died in a very short period of time and her sister elizabeth the uh, the daughter of anne boleyn she is the one who uh, restored her father's uh, her father's uh, reforms yeah and she made england uh, a strong anglican country a protestant country and her age is called the elizabethan age it is the age when new ideas came into england it's the age when new money started coming into england from india right so this is the, this is a time when great changes started to happen in england so new ideas were afforded people were no longer discouraged from thinking differently science was allowed mathematics was allowed indian sciences and mathematics made their way into england in the 17th century isaac newton would use these to to proclaim that he has discovered calculus and then because of that you had the you had new ideas and new technologies coming into england and all of this together the new money the immense amount of money that started coming in from india the new ideas the new technologies new sciences basically brought about the industrial revolution in 17th century england and you had brilliant minds like newton and and robert boyle and robert hook and the other scientists who brought about a revolution in the sciences and this is what impelled england into becoming a global power the new technology the navigation the focus on on the navy and the sciences that allowed the navy to go very very much further than any other navy had gone before all of this made is what made england into this global power so it all started with the break that uh, henry the 8 uh, effected with the vatican church now how did england become so strong and greedy i i explained how they became so strong how did they become greedy well there was they were always greedy england was always a feudal society a terrible caste uh, not caste but class system they accuse india of casteism good god have you, have you seen the feudal nature of english society uh, there was a time in england around 1000 years ago when more than 10% of the population was slaves they had to wear this copper or brass uh, rings around their necks and england has always been a, a, a land of a great divide you have the small aristocracy and nobility which was which essentially held all the lands and held all the power and they decided what everything what would happen and they decided the fate fates of the peasants the common the common the people the poor people so england was always a greedy nation they exploited their own people relentlessly mercilessly for centuries they were always greedy for expansion and once they were empowered with the unlimited wealth from india and all this technology and science then they just expanded outwards and that's how it all happened that's how the british empire was born so that's a great question again by akash a related question the americans are descendants of the british and yet they fought against them for independence please explain so the these people have no allegiance to anybody the conquest of america was all for for money it was for greed uh, this nation the united states was built on the genocide of one people the native americans at least 100 million must have died and it was also built on the slavery of another people the african origin people the black people so it was a land of immense profits immense territories just to be stolen away from the natives and use the blacks to do any labor you want give them one or two meals a day and you're done so it was a land of immense profits for the for these british who went there 
and soon they became very rich and very powerful but the problem was that they owed their allegiance to the british crown they had to send back all the profits most of the much of the profits to the british crown in the form of enormously heavy taxes and they resented that very much they said we are so many thousands of miles away from england why should the crown of england have any sway over us and that's why they fought for independence it was the independence they fought for the independence of a small group of white men and their families the independence did not apply to the native americans or to the uh, black slaves and uh, the voting rights all the franchise was with the white white men only right so that's the war for independence it is portrayed as this great heroic struggle for justice and equality and freedom that's absolute nonsense uh, land of the free home of the brave that's how we it's it, america is portrayed you should see the declaration of of independence in which the kind of language that that is used for the native americans it is still there right the declaration of independence so it was a very unequal brutal racist endeavor and that was the independence they fought for it was independence to make unlimited profits and pay no taxes to the crown of england so that is the reason they fought they fought to start a new empire in the north northern part in the northern half of the americas that's what it was and eventually the best minds the most adventurous people the the piratical minded people etc they always made their way from england into the americas so essentially over time as the british empire declined the american empire uh correspondingly rose so america is in a way it is in a way the reincarnation or the continuation of the british empire it's it's the same culture the same people and the same mindset the same world view and the same method methodology so america is essentially a continuation of the british empire the empire died in the small island but it continued in the form of the american empire which which was the major hegemonic power of the 20th century it still is to some extent but it's declining so that i hope answers your question okay santoshini asks please tell us about the war between the emperor rimush of mesopotamia and the indus saraswati civilization as was mentioned in the inscription right so this king rimush of mesopotamia he was he was the second king of the akkadian empire he he was in power in the 22nd or 20 23rd century bce about 4300 or so years before today so as always let's go to the map okay first let me show you what this gentleman looked like so this is believed to be a representation of of rimush the second emperor of the akkadian empire it's a strangely familiar face somehow isn't it okay map so here's the map we were in 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 europe let's come back eastwards so this is present day turkey anatolia and this is where rimush reigned let me okay this is better so you can see kuwait here you can see basra if you can see my mouse pointer so this empire the akkadian empire was in power from this this region near the persian gulf all the way into syria and it had it also encompassed parts of anatolia 
So it was this region over here, which you can see in my mouse, via my mouse pointer. So that was the Akkadian Empire. And this king, Rimush, was the neighbor of, a, of another empire, a proto-Persian empire, which was called Ilam. So Ilam was to the east of, of, Akkad, uh, of the Akkadians. It was essentially western, uh, southwest, uh, southwestern Iran. So the region of the Persian Gulf over here, if you can see my mouse pointer, that is, that is Ilam. There was a proto-Persian empire, a kingdom. And to the east of Ilam, you had Marhashi, which was another proto-Persian uh, region. And Ilam and Marhashi both were strongly influenced by ancient India, by the Harappan uh, phase of India's civilization. So you can see, if you look at the uh, artifacts, archaeological artifacts, carvings, statues, etc. These are very, very reminiscent of what you find in the Sapta Sindhu region during the Harappan or Indus Valley or Saraswati uh, civilization era of India, of Indian civilization. So Ilam and Marhashi were both uh, strongly influenced by India, by the, by the Saraswati civilization. So this guy Rimush, he was in power for about eight or nine years only. He was the son of the great king Sargon of Akkad. So Rimush fought a war with first with the Ilamites and then with the people of Marhashi. So it is said that when he fought the people, the, the kingdom of Marhashi, uh, the Marhashi uh, were, were helped by troops from Meluha. So Meluha is the ancient name that these uh, uh, Sumerians, Akkadians, etc. gave to the Indus Valley or Saraswati Valley civilization. So basically Indians went and fought on behalf of the Marhashi kingdom against uh, this king, Rimush of Akkad. And Rimush, in his inscriptions, he says that he won this war and he defeated the people of Marhashi and their uh, Indian allies. So that is what he has recorded. That is the, that is the claim he has made. Maybe he is right. Uh, that's, that's what uh, historians believe. So that is the war that he waged against, not against India, but against this uh, Eastern Iranian kingdom called Marhashi. And the Marhashi people were helped by Indian allies. And even the Elamites had a great deal of Indian influence. So that again ties in with what we know of Persia, that it is a descendant of India. The, the Persian people are the descendants of the Parshwa clan of the Rigvedic people. So we can see the, these influences right here, because Indians went and helped the Marhashi people, who were basically uh, de facto Persians. So that's an interesting aspect of, of ancient history. Uh, Rimush, this king, was in power for eight or nine years only. He was assassinated and then his brother took over. His brother had a much longer and more uh, successful uh, reign as the king of the Akkadian Empire. So I hope that answers your question. Okay, Sovik asks, uh, can you please tell us the difference between modern modern day Turkey and the Turkic invaders? Are they, are they the same or different ethnic groups? So essentially the question you're asking is what is the difference between the Turks of Turkey and the Turkic peoples of history? So the Turkic peoples of ancient history are the, uh, are the ancestors of the modern day Turks. Now if you look at the Turkic peoples who live in Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, etc., Uyghurstan, and all the regions of Central Asia, even Southern Siberia, etc. 
you will find that these people have strongly mongol like uh, facial features they 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 are closest uh, their closest ethnic relatives are the mongols so they have that typical mongol style appearance right what is uh, traditionally called the mongoloid appearance uh, so that's what the turkic peoples of central asia look like if you look at the people of turkey they look like europeans they don't look like central asians at all and nevertheless it is the turkic peoples of central asia the ancient turkic peoples who are the ancestors of the modern day turks so the ancient turkic peoples were the distant cousins of the mongols they all both these ethnic groups descend from the hunnic peoples who are attested to live in uh, present day eastern xinjiang around 2 and 1/2000 years ago there were many hunnic invasions into india as well and we also assimilated some of these hunnic peoples so the turks and the mongols are distantly related and the mong the turks they basically lived in central asia now in the 13th century in the late 12th and early 13th century when chinggis khan suddenly expanded all across the world the turks ran for their lives and they came they went east they went westwards and southwards and they entered anatolia and that's the region they conquered and they eventually established the ottoman empire so there was this king called there was this uh, turkic leader called suleiman shah who was the first turk to enter anatolia so these are the original turks the turks of today the people of turkey are their descendants and these ancient turkic peoples are the ones who invaded india as well the various turkic invasions the mamluks who were turkic slaves who formed the delhi sultanate and the later the turks who invaded the first one this new dynasty which was led which was initiated by babur so he was also a turk they are now called the moguls for because the british called them the moguls but they were actually turks so the mogul dynasty is actually a turkic dynasty so those are also related to those people who invaded anatolia and founded the nation the the ottoman empire which is now the nation of turkey so that is the relationship between these various turkic peoples there are lots of different turkic groups across central asia turkmenistan kazakhstan tajikistan not tajikistan turkmenistan turkmenistan kazakhstan uh let me look at the map i have it here kyrgyzstan uzbekistan kazakhstan parts of uh, western present day china which is xinjiang which is east turkestan and also the siberian peoples of southern siberia etc so these are all turkic peoples they all speak a variety of turkic languages which are to some extent mutually intelligible or not so these are the turkic peoples they are spread spread across a wide uh, region of eurasia and the modern day turks are descendants of ancient turkic peoples i hope that clarifies this matter good question akash again before the first world war which war cost the most lives so that's a good question that's something we should know about so you know uh before the first world war there were many 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 wars that that had a great death toll for example before the first world war you had colonization colonialism which ha- which extracted an immense death toll uh, across uh, various parts of the world across africa across asia even the americas so for example in the 1885s you 
from 1885 to 1908, approximately thereabouts, you had the Belgian Free State, which was essentially owned by King Leopold of Belgium. It was the Congo Free State. It was in Central Africa. And it was a period of incredible exploitation of the native people. They were put to work as slaves. Children, men, women, elderly, everyone. Children were mutilated. Their arms and legs were cut off and whatnot. At least 10 million Africans, at the very conservative estimate, died during the Belgian occupation of the Congo. There was a horrible period. And then there was this scramble for Africa in the 19th century, when the whole of Europe scrambled for Africa to divide up Africa into small pieces and extract as much as they could out of it in order to enrich themselves. So Germany conducted a genocide in Namibia. Other countries did all kinds of atrocities everywhere else. The French were involved. The British were involved. Netherlands, uh, the Germans, and so many other. Uh, Belgium, like I said. So at least, at least, at the very least, 50 million Africans would have died in the 19th century in this uh, colonial occupation of Africa. Then you had the European colonization of North America only in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, which cost at least 100 million lives of the Native Americans. You had the British colonial, colonial occupation of India, which cost minimum 100 million lives in relentless year after year engineered famines. One year you would have 2 million deaths, one year 5 million, another year 1 million. Every year you had millions of people dying in these artificially engineered famines. So you had at least... 100 million Indians who died in that. And in the 1857 War of Indi Independence, at least 13 million people died in that. So that is some of the figures. And then let's look at China. China has seen enormous conflicts. Like I said in another episode in the past, China is used to war. But all those wars are internal wars. They are all civil wars. China's great, great military feats are all military feats against its own people. So you had the Taiping Rebellion in the 19th century from 1850 to 1860s on thereabouts, in which from between 50 and 100 million people died. In just a decade and a half, approximately 100 million people died in China in this Taiping Rebellion. <clears throat> and then you had the transition from the Ming Dynasty to the, to the Qing Dynasty in the 17th century, in which at least 25 million Chinese died. So that's another civil war. You had the An-Lushan Rebellion in the 8th century in which 30 to 40 million Chinese died. You had the Dongan Revolt again in the 19th century in Western China, present-day China, in which 10 to 15 million people died, mostly Chinese Muslims. And then outside of China, you had the conquests of Timur in which 70 to 20 million people died. And then you had the Turkic invasions and occupation of India which is not documented at all because India is a secular country, but I would say that at least 500 million people died over five centuries in India. 500 million Indians minimum during these Turkic invasions and occupation of India. So that is the kind of death toll the world has seen. It's, uh, you know, it kind of makes you question humanity. There is this, uh, there is this theory, the, the violent ape theory or something like that, which says that humans and apes are the same. We are the same aggressive uh, instincts that are inbuilt in our DNA. And we, could just, we just can't help it. We just have to keep fighting each other. So the same aggressive tendencies are seen among chimpanzees. They also form groups and coalitions and go to war against each other. Their warfare is brutal. And we are not, no, no different. We share 
about 90 to 95 percent of the same DNA with the chimps, or or at least more than 98 percent. So we are very similar to our closest evolutionary cousins, and we have the same urges and instincts and uh, aggressive drive. So all these numbers that tell you some, they kind of bring that out, you know. So that's the kind of history the humanity has seen, and I've only touched uh, some parts of 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 recent history. History. There have been many more wars and many more deaths and all that. So that I hope briefly and roughly answers your question. Okay, this is a question by uh, by Mr. Arya. Uh, how is the Inca civilization of South America related to Indic? Uh, Spanish archaeologists uh, provide Christian-centric data to indigenous Peruvians. No serious effort deciphering in Inca language. Should Indian archaeologists play a vital role? Sun worship is prevalent in polytheistic faiths, though the Inca civilization is medieval. So this is a question that many of you have asked. I, I have taken this particular question. Many of you have asked about the relationship between India and the ancient Americas, if there is any such relationship. It's a very, very interesting question. Good question. So the Americas, the south, the southern part and the northern part, two continents, have had very ancient civilizations. Uh, the Incas are a medieval civilization. They were, let me show you the map again. Okay, one second. Let me bring the map back. Here it is. Let me remove the question. Okay, let's go. Let's go to the Americas. So the Inca civilization was in southern, southwestern, uh, in the in the north, in the northwest of South America. So it included parts of Colombia. It included it included Ecuador, Peru, parts of Bolivia, parts of Chile, and parts of northern Argentina. It was a very large civilization, a large empire. It is a pre-Columbian empire. It was destroyed by the Spanish when they colonized South America. So these uh, these people, they were basically, like you said, polytheistic. They, were, they worshipped a variety of gods. The sun god is one pattern that occurs throughout all the civilizations of the Americas. The sun is always worshipped as a god. And so is the moon, so are other elements of nature. So there are male gods, female gods, and it's a polytheistic culture. And other civilizations, such as the Mayas, the Aztecs, the Toltecs, the Chimu, the Moche, the Olmecs, etc. All of them show a similar pattern. They all were polytheistic in, in nature. They all worshipped a sun god. They also had other gods like the plumed serpent, Kukulkan or Quetzalcoatl, and many other gods. And like you said, the like somebody else at least has said, there is a great deal of uh, similarity between the people of India and the people of Mexico, etc. They look very similar and all that. So yeah, these are this is all called circumstantial evidence. There is a great deal of circumstantial evidence that kind of makes one wonder: is there a connection between ancient India and these ancient peoples of the Americas? And I've only spoken of the South Americas. Uh, there's a great deal of uh, History in North America as well. They also had great cultures and civilizations which have uh, been totally ignored by historians and, and archaeologists. So the question is, is there a relationship between ancient India and these ancient peoples? And the question, the answer is, there could be, but as of now, there is no 
confirmation of that. We don't have sufficient data. There was this book by an uh, Indian author called Bhikshu Chamanlal, who uh, brought to light lots of similarities in culture, traditions, possibly even language to some extent between these ancient cultures and these peoples who still live there and ancient India. So there is a possibility, but we don't have evidence. We don't have sufficient data to say either yes or no. Can Indian archaeologists play a role? I would say that Indian archaeologists should first start playing a role in India. They are doing nothing in India. The whole of India is unexplored from the archaeological perspective. So we need to first explore our own history before we can go and help others. Right? Explore India itself, gain some experience, gain some, gain some knowledge, gain a great deal of expertise in using the different tools of archaeology, especially the new scientific tools and methods. Make archaeology scientific, make it a scientific pursuit, do it extensively in India, and then maybe you can go and help uh, other cultures and countries. So in the future, maybe India can do that. But first, India needs to sort out its own internal uh, unsolved historical matters. So I hope that answers your question, sir. Okay, this is another question that I have got uh, many, many times. Why did Hitler use the swastika symbol? So the symbol that we are referring to as the swastika is an ancient symbol that is found throughout Eurasia. In other episodes, I have uh, uh, spoken about the fact that before the Christianization of Europe, the entirety of Eurasia stretching from India in the east to Ireland in the west was a single cultural continuum. You had the same culture essentially spread across this vast region and you had lots of different local manifestations of this culture with different traditions and different names but they were all manifestations of the same underlying overall ancient culture. And therefore you find the swastika everywhere in Europe, everywhere in every ancient culture of Europe, among the Celtic people, among the Gaulish people, among the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, uh, the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, uh, the people of Santorini Island, the people of various other volcanic islands in the Mediterranean, even among the Nordic people, the so-called Vikings, the Scandinavians, the Germanic peoples, everybody used the swastika as a symbol of divinity, as a symbol of, of auspiciousness. It was an auspicious, very positive symbol. And they all had different names from for the swastika. So the English called it the Gamadian, I think. The French called it La Croix Gamay. The Germans called it the Hackenkreuz, and so on. So the symbol that Hitler used was the Hackenkreuz. He called it the Hackenkreuz. The Nazis called it the Hackenkreuz. It is only after the defeat of the Third Reich and the death of Hitler when people rewrote history and then they inserted the name, the Sanskrit name swastika in there. So they have tried to malign the auspicious sacred swastika by associating it with the symbol that Hitler used. Yes, Hitler was an Aryan supremacist. He believed that the Europeans were the original Aryans, right? He wanted this pan-Aryanist movement. He claimed supremacy, uh, racial supremacy for the Aryan peoples. And uh, he tried to associate this Hakenkreuz, the hooked cross, with the Aryan race. He needed a potent, powerful symbol for his political movement. So he took, the, took this Hakenkreuz, he twisted it further 
and turned it into a symbol of evil. But that was the Hakenkreuz. It was not the Indian Hindu Dharmic swastika. It is later that historians inserted the name swastika instead of the Hakenkreuz. So that is one of the ways in which historians have been maligning India and Hinduism. So Hitler did whatever he did. He was an evil man. He was a monster. And they have tried to associate our sacred auspicious symbol, which is used across Asia as a symbol of, 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 of uh, auspiciousness. They have tried to associate the symbol with that monster, that evil monster. And that is something that we need to push back against. I mean, even today you will see that in Japan, they will uh, depict the temples by swastikas. Let's go to Google Maps again. I'll, I'll show you right away. So we are in the, in the Americas. Let's go to Japan. This is Japan. Let's go to an ancient city. Let's say Osaka. Let's go into Osaka and let's let's look for temple. I'm going to search for temple. Just temple. And can you see this? You have the Buddhist swastika, the reverse swastika, which is used to, de to depict temples across Japan. So that is how auspicious this symbol is in Japan, across the Dharmic world, across the Buddhist world, the Eastern Asian world. And that is the symbol these people have tried to malign by associating it with that genocidal monster. So this is something we need to fight back against. We need to reclaim the swastika as an auspicious symbol, as a symbol of good, not of evil. And I think in the future, I will do a session about this ancient symbol. It's a very interesting uh, topic. So this is a great question. Okay, one more question by Akash. If communism and Marxism failed at every step and is responsible for killings of millions of people, why is it popular even today? It's because it is so easy to fool people, especially when the fooling is done from a position of authority. When your professors are trying to fool you, you will get fooled by them because they represent authority and knowledge. And you believe that they, they are trying to help you out, right? They are trying to educate you and help you. And that's how they, pro they propagate all this nonsense. Let me explain in one sentence what communism slash Marxism is. Marxism is a socio-political toolkit that enables a very small number of people to capture and retain political power. That is what Marxism is. And the vast majority of Marxism practitioners are the cannon fodder. So the people who go and demonstrate on the streets, the people who fight guerrilla wars, the, the students in schools and in, in universities who go on and do these uh, protests, etc. and vandalize property, they are the cannon fodder. Behind them is a small group of masterminds who actually understand what Marxism really is. That it's a means of capturing and retaining political power. Capturing it by any means necessary. And Marxism always talks about, about, about equality, about the good of the people, about the equality of the masses, about the upliftment of the oppressed, downtrodden proletariat and the evils of the evil bourgeoisie, etc. And it is this pseudo-intellectual language that sounds like they have got everything figured out. And that's why people are so drawn towards Marxism, especially people who feel that they have been... Uh, they have been oppressed in some way or they have been uh, treated unfairly. And that is something that is a sentiment you can uh, evoke in almost anybody, anywhere in the world. You, you are seeing the deep 
polarization that you are seeing in the United States. It is a consequence of, of the Marxist education that uh, they are getting over there. So in, in brief, that is why Marxism is so successful even today, because they have the power of propaganda. They have killed more than 100 million people, whether it is Mao Zedong or Pol Pot or Stalin or the Angolan uh, uh, experiment with Marxism, etc. It's exacted a horrifying death toll. And yet it is it continues to be so popular because it is used as an instrument of acquiring political power. It's a very powerful instrument. I will go into this in a separate session, perhaps, or maybe I'll do a separate video about this, what exactly Marxism is. But this is a very good question. So with that, I have come to the end of the questions I have selected. Let me take a couple of live questions if there are. I can see there are lots and lots of them. I have answered some of these questions. Okay, Brunal asks, one second, let me remove that question. Yes, Brunal asks, is the earth flat or oval? Uh, thank you, thank you, Brunal, thank you. Is the earth flat or oval? It's not a complete, uh, perfect sphere. It is a distorted sphere. And if you look at the shape of the oceans on the earth, it's an oval. And this oval shape is because of the tides. It's because of the gravitational effect that the moon exerts on the earth. So this tidal effect causes the oceans to bulge in two directions. The sun also exerts some gravity on the earth. And this, uh, this uh, interplay of the gravitational effects of the sun and the moon causes the shape of the oceans. If you see from far away, it, it, it bulges out into an oval shape. But the uh, hard geography of the planet is, is more or less spherical. It's slightly extended at the equator. So it's like a squashed sphere. So it's not perfectly spherical. Uh, it's an interesting phenomenon, especially the tides are an interesting phenomenon. So I hope that answers your question in brief. Uh, I want to talk about uh, history. Yes, uh, in world history. Let me take uh, some world history questions. There's a super chat. So Timur was a Turkic king. He claimed descent from Chinggis Khan. We have no evidence of that. And uh, the Mughals, Babur claimed to be the descendant of Timur and of Chinggis Khan too. That is a claim. When you want to aspire to greatness, you make claims. I am descended from so-and-so or so-and-so. So there is no evidence that he was actually descended from either Timur or Chinggis Khan. And there is no evidence that Timur was himself descended from Chinggis Khan, even though he made the claim. So the Mughals are Turks. Babur claimed descent from Timur, but that's a hypothetical thing. We don't really know. We have no evidence of that. Why was Samarkand the precious place to conquer? Samarkand is in a dreary, hot place. It's in, in the Fargana Valley, if I'm not mistaken. There was nothing especially precious about the place. It became rich because of the conquest from India. So lots of gold and jewelry and, and precious stones and slaves from India were taken there to Samarkand and Bukhara and Tashkent. And these places became rich as a, as, a, as a consequence of the conquests of India, of the various invasions of India. So that is your answer in brief, sir. Okay, what would have happened? Oh, this is by Milan. What would have happened if Nazi Germany had won the war? 
uh, how much would the war have helped india to gain independence if the nazi germans if the if the germans had won the war we would be having this conversation in german and would that have helped india to gain independence well they would have smashed the british so india would have gained independence from the british but would the germans have continued expanding across the world and would they have again subjected india to occupation we don't know it's a hypothetical scenario uh, so things would have been certainly very different had the nazis prevailed in the second world war aditya asks how did humans native people of america or australia reach the far distant lands of america and canada from and canada from africa or europe when there were not many ways of reaching through sea they reached by sea they reached these lands far away lands on canoes on boats or rafts or outrigger canoes i mean there was this uh, this scandinavian explorer called thor heyerdahl who actually built an a canoe based on ancient designs it was called the kontiki and he undertook an a voyage that either crossed the pacific ocean or the atlantic ocean i don't remember right now but he crossed one of these two oceans and he demonstrated that it was possible to survive such an arduous sea voyage on basically just a raft a primitive raft and he was able to cross over so it is possible to do that if you understand navigation and if you have some element of luck and if you prepare properly with all the provisions and water for this long voyage so i think it is believed that it is most likely that ancient humans crossed over in that manner i think ancient indians crossed over ancient indians during the harappan times had a great deal of expertise in in navigation so it was i don't think it was very hard for them to reach australia but the other peoples who reached uh, the americas in ancient times it would have been a much harder challenge for them to do that so i think they they did that on various kinds of primitive or quasi primitive floating crafts either canoes outrigger canoes or extended rafts and uh, that's that's how i i think it happened it is now known that uh, there is human there has been human inhabitation at least in south america for more than 100000 years more ev evidence is emerging so the history of the americas and of the world is is changing we are soon going to see new facts and history may be rewritten all over again so that's an interesting topic this is by ritu patil thank you ritu some people believe that the anglo saxon invasion much like the ait is made up and promising there is promising evidence to it a uh, anglo saxon saxon invasion of which place we know that there was a saxon saxon invasion of the british isles which happened about 15 or 1700 years before today the saxons and the angles these are two germanic tribal groups or ethnic groups they invaded the british islands they conquered much of this territory they subdued the local celtic peoples and they established this anglo-saxon rule and culture in the british islands and later the normans invaded in the year 1066 under uh, william the conqueror duke william of normandy and then they imposed a um, french viking composite culture on the anglo saxons so this is what we know it is all we have evidence for it if you are referring to 
of England. Okay, I get it, of England. So yes, we have we have substantial evidence for the Anglo-Saxon invasions of of uh, the British Islands. There is definitely a lot of evidence for it. We know it happened, and the later Norman invasion also is very well attested. So yes, it is credible, and and there is evidence for this. The Apollo landing, I don't see it. I don't think it is fake. No. Okay, anything else? I'll take one more question and then we will be done. Okay, this is about the pyramids of Egypt by Webhav. This is the last question for today, people. So why are the why pyramids like Egypt were not made in ancient India? Well, there is a very good reason for it. Making building a pyramid of that size is an extremely expensive endeavor and a great deal of labor, manpower, money, gold, treasure, and time has to be expended on building a pyramidal monument which serves no purpose to the people or the nation. It simply serves to glorify the emperor. Now, India's emperors they were not like that. They had to follow a, a code of conduct, a, cloak, a code of ethics. They basically served dharma and they served the people and the kingdom or the nation or the civilization, depending on whether it was a small king, a big king or an emperor of, whole, of the whole of India. So they served the people, they served the nation, the civilization, and they served dharma. And according to dharma, you cannot have this sort of wasteful expenditure. You have to prioritize the long-term prosperity and security of the people and the kingdom. And building a pyramid like the Egyptian pyramids does not serve that cause in any way whatsoever. It actually detracts from that cause. You're wasting a lot of money and time and all that in building a monument to glorify yourself. Indian kings never glorified themselves. That's why we don't have any great palaces in India. Kings, even emperors lived humbly. And you will see that all the time. Even recent kings and emperors. A great king like Shivaji, the great Chhatrapati Shivaji, did he have a palace? He had fortresses because he had to fight back the, the Mughals, the, the Turks. So fortresses were not palaces. Those were military strongholds. But he himself did not live in a palatial, palatial uh, palace or anything. He lived humbly. Queen Ahalya by Holkar, she lived very humbly. Every Indian king or queen lived humbly. They did not have opulent uh, show of uh, palaces and all that. Even in the Harappan or uh, Saptasindhu region uh, phase of India's civilization, the biggest uh, buildings you will find are public buildings, meeting places or, or public baths and all that. There is no evidence of a single palace in the entirety of the geography of the Saptasindhu region in the Saraswati and Indus valleys and the other valleys of the region. So Indian kings and queens and emperors have never ever wasted money in this manner. They're only focus. Their only duty has been to further the national interest and to serve the people and the civilization. And their highest morality was the long-term peace, peace and prosperity of the people and the kingdom. So that's the reason why pyramids like Egypt were never made in ancient India. All right, people, we have come to the end of today's session. Great session, great questions. And this is the first of many sessions that we will do about world history. So that's it for today. And I look forward to seeing you in tomorrow's episode.
Thank you very much for watching. Have a good night. Have a good day. And I'll see you. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye.